So I've, I've, le- I've been kind of just reflecting this morning in the conversations that I've had with some of you between services that, um, you know, there's some questions. I don't know, I don't say you, you never outgrow, but, but certainly you don't outgrow just because you, you leave childhood. And one of the questions is um, in the aftermath of Christmas, as I've seen people on morning, and it's just this, and the same thing we used to ask each other when we were 9, 10, and 11 years old. Um, wh- what'd you get? You know, what'd you get? What'd you get for Christmas? And we have these conversations. What, what did we give? Now, as parents, it's also what did you give your kids for Christmas? Um, you know, and those kind of things. But, but what, what did you get? And so I've had a number of people ask me that this morning. And, well, one of the things I got was a new shirt. Um, and, and it is an obligation. I have to wear the new shirt the Sunday after Christmas or else I get in trouble. So, um, so that was one of the things. But, but the other thing that I got, my, my big gift, if you will, um, was a pressure washer. I didn't ask for a pressure washer. But apparently, I needed a pressure washer. And I want to... I want to share things. I want you to learn from me. I want you to learn from me. So I want to share with you this. Specifically, gentlemen, but this can be for you ladies as well. But if you're ever given a pressure washer for Christmas, the appropriate response is, thank you, dear. Exactly what I wanted. What a perfect gift. Those are all acceptable responses. Not acceptable is to look at your wife and ask her, isn't this the equivalent of me giving you a vacuum for Christmas? <laughs> That's not good. That doesn't, that doesn't work so well. Um, so people say, well, what have you been doing kind of on your downtime between Christmas Eve and sun today? And I've been playing with my new toy. <laughs> Pressure washing decks and soffits and sidewalks. So... Um, in all seriousness, it, it, is a, it is a very practical and useful gift for us. So I'm, I got her permission to tell all those stories on her, just so you know. Um, but, uh, but I hope it, it, it has been a good week for you. I uh, always, the, the rhythm of, a, of, a, of church life and ministry specifically, but, but for all of us, is that the year is marked by a few what we call high Sundays or high days, high holy days. Easter and Christmas are the most significant. Those, those services, and John will tell you this, that we put, um, and, and others, that we just put a lot of energy and effort into because there's so many pieces. And if those of you that were here for Christmas Eve you know, saw, saw all the kind of pieces that go into to a worship, specifically in the music area. And so those are big and they're wonderful services, and, and we certainly, certainly love those kind of high days. And they're, they're often in church circles, and they talk about the Sunday after. Sunday after Easter, Sunday after Christmas, and they call them low Sundays. And, uh, and I've never liked that term. You know, they're talking about kind of the, the, the energy shift between those two. I always, and seriously, I always like to call them relaxed Sundays. The Sunday after Christmas always feels a little more relaxed to me. I, I've loved everything about the season of Advent, but, but it is nice to kind of come down from some of that stuff that we do, some of those rituals and practices, and start to, 
to kind of get back into a little bit of a rhythm or feel like we're starting to get back into a rhythm. That's what it, that's what it feels like to me on a day like today. It is a little more relaxed and, and a little more, uh, the, the pace changes a little bit. And, and that's fun. And we start to look forward now. We start to look forward toward the new year. And we'll talk about this both this week and, and next week. And, and we start to think about this new opportunity. January 1st, though it's an arbitrary date on a calendar, uh, represents something significant for a lot of us. You know, it's a, it's a new year, new opportunities, new beginnings, um, new challenges. Uh, new year always brings new challenges. For me, it will take me at least three weeks to get conditioned to write 2019 or type that in. I've already had to correct myself a number of times. There's those kind of challenges of adjustment. But there's opportunities that comes with a new year. And if you read some of the the, the the questions that John puts up, the fun stuff between services on the screen, it talks about New Year's resolutions and, and the most common New Year's resolution, which is to lose weight, if you saw that, you know, and that's, and, and, but, but we, a lot of times, we do look to improve ourselves in a new year. We want to take on new habits and new practices of, of self-improvement or, or self-betterment, and, and if you listen to conversations, our conversations get peppered with this. January 1st kind of represents an opportunity to turn over a new leaf. Start paying attention. You'll hear it all over the place. Uh, Friday, Ryan and I went to the Y. We were at the Y, and we were taking a a couple um, exercise classes that we go to from time to time. He goes with me when he's here. And one of the instructors there that we take a lot of our classes with, she's wonderful, but we tease her because she is notorious for starting class five minutes late. So if a class starts at 8.30, it really starts at 8.35. If it starts at 9, it starts at 9.05. And that's kind of the running joke. And so we're in there, 8.30 class on Friday, and it started right on time. And we're like, what are you doing? You don't start class on time. And she's like, it's, it's almost the new year. It's a new I'm going to be on time this year. That was her goal. That was kind of a resolution. Now, we took a class at 8.30, and then she taught the second class we took at 9.15. The second class started five minutes late. <laughs> so she made one class. Um, you know, we, we, it, it's challenging. And it's not always those kind of things. They're, you know, to be more organized, to, um, to floss every night. Somebody told me that was their New Year's resolution. To control their temper better and to be in control of their emotions. There's any number of ways we seek to be better at the start of a new year. And, and that leads to the January 1st jokes. You pay attention, you'll hear them probably. And maybe you're one of the persons that does it. The person that gets up on January 1st and goes and runs a mile or exercises and then tells everybody, I've exercised every day this year. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. Or I've eaten healthy every day or I've done that. And we have to joke that way on January 1st. A lot of us do. Because after January 1st comes January 2nd. And January 3rd and January 4th. And then on January 3rd, the alarm goes off in the morning and we don't feel like getting out of bed. Or January 4th, we're driving down 301 and somebody cuts us off and all of a sudden we don't control our temper so well. Or, or we lose our dental floss. Whatever it is, it's hard to maintain the consistency. So, so for a lot of us, we have to kind of joke early on because, because it becomes very challenging to maintain those, those commitments in the long haul. And, and that's always the, the, the difficulty we have. But I wonder, as I was reflecting personally, on goals for a new year, Um, whether one of my failures, I think that's a fair word, one of my failures is that my goals are too self-centered. Not that it's wrong to have personal goals, but that they're, they're all personal 
and that the scope is, is not faithful the way that God's called me to be faithful. That it's a little too self-reflective and not enough, not enough self-giving or self-sacrificial um, in some ways. And when we look to Jesus, we see a very different kind of an example. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes talking about this morning. I want to look at the one story that we have from the childhood of Jesus. Uh, In between the the birth narratives and the start of Jesus' ministry, we have one story from his childhood. And it happened here, it's told here in Luke chapter 2. And that's the story I want to read this morning. So, again, Luke, second chapter, which we've been in for weeks because much of the the Christmas story is told in Luke chapter 2. But this is a little bit later. This is the story we read there. It says, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, he went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they weren't aware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would, in the example of Christ, that we would grow in wisdom. We'd grow in, in obedience and faithfulness, that we'd learn through your word and through our worship and through the time together as we open our hearts to, to your Holy Spirit. So Lord, bless these words that I speak. May they be from you. And may they bless us as we seek to, to grow in Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. So... Again, one story. We have one story from the childhood of Jesus. Between birth and the start of his ministry, which is roughly age 30, so between his being born and turning about 30 years old, we get one story, and this is it. And it's an it's a, it's a interesting story to be included in the gospel. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, brings to mind the question of why. Why does Luke choose to tell this story? Because it is, in some ways, it's a little perplexing. Because it's not a, it's not a model story. It's certainly not a, a great example of, of parenting for Mary and Joseph. You know, it's not the kind of story that, that you're going to say, hey, let me tell you about what wonderful parents Mary and Joseph were. They lost their kid for three days. I mean, that's the, that's the heart of it. It's, it's, a, it's, a lo- it's a home alone before home alone kind of thing. You know, they, they, Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph go down 
to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And that's an eight-day celebration. Eight days in the city. Now, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus would have had about 25,000 inhabitants. For the Passover feast each year, it would swell to over 100,000 people. So um, think our community in the middle of winter when everybody's here. And then multiply it two or three times. I mean, it's packed in. You know, things, things get jammed and, and movements get slow. And so they're there and they've been there for eight days and they've celebrated the Passover. And, and Mary and Joseph are probably ready to go. They're probably ready to get home. Joseph was a, a skilled laborer. He worked with wood and, or stone. And he probably had projects he needed to get back to. Mary pro- undoubtedly had things she needed to do for her family. They're ready to get home. after You know, you've been on vacations like that where it's been great. But by the end of it, you're ready to get home. And so they start home, and they travel an entire day, and then they realize, oops, our kid's not with us. And the question that that comes up whenever we've talked about this story in Bible studies or small groups, inevitably the question that comes up is, how do you go a full day and not know your kid's not with you? I mean, a lot of you, because as I've preached this morning, a lot of you have told me stories. I mean, we hear the stories of parents either that maybe you left a kid for a period of time by mistake or you got left somewhere. That, that's not totally uncommon, but hopefully not for a 24-hour period before somebody realized you weren't there. But that's kind of what happens to Jesus. And, and the question comes up, how does that happen? Well, it's not as hard as it would seem to be. Um, And the key is right there at the very beginning. It says that when Jesus was 12 years old, that is really, really culturally important. That when when Luke chooses to tell us the age, when you read that, it should be a clue to you. There's going to be something significant about this age that, that Luke feels important to tell us when he was 12 years old. And here's what is significant. 12 years old was the time in the Jewish culture that a boy became a man. At the end of the 12th year, you know, we, we, we understand, and you might be familiar with the bar mitzvah, but the end of the, the 12th year was a stark transition. It wasn't a gradual. A boy became a man. Now, I've been involved in youth ministry early in my ministry, and I certainly am around enough with Joe and Julie and, and youth events and the young people at our, at our church. And we have great kids. Don't hear this as a criticism. And, and as a father of a son... Don't, don't hear this, but, but I've never looked at a 13-year-old boy and thought, that's a man right there, you know? <laughs> that's still a kid for most of us. But in the culture, it, it was the time when a boy became a man. Now, why does that matter? Well, things changed at that point. So, for instance, let's talk about, we're talking about the Passover and, and the celebration, which a lot of the, the events would take place at the temple. Well, in the temple of Jerusalem, you had three courts, you had the court of the Gentiles. That was on the perimeter. Um, that was as far as most of us would be able to go. If we, were, if we were in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus as Gentiles, we could go to the court of the Gentiles. But when you got further into the temple, you came to the court of the women. And again, patriarchal society, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't equal rights at this point. So women could only go into the court of the women. And it wasn't just the women. It was women and children. So that's where the women and children would go. Then when you went in to kind of another level, you would come to the court of the Israelites, and that's where the men could gather. And then you'd have where the priests could go, and you'd have the Holy of Holies. But so court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the Israelites. Well, for Jesus at that age 12, 
was that transition point where he could go from the court of the women with his mother and the children into the court of the Israelites with the men. So it's a transition point. Now, why does that pertain to him being left behind? Well, it changed how they traveled. When, when families would travel down uh, to, to Jerusalem for the Passover, especially from Nazareth, that's an 80 to 100 mile journey because Jerusalem's very close to Bethlehem. And so they would be, you know, it'd be day's journey. And so they would travel in large caravans with people from the community for safety and, and for, for protection. And so when they would travel, the women and children would travel in the front of the caravan. The men would be in the rear where they could react if there was any, any problems. So here's how Jesus got left behind. As they're traveling out of Jerusalem, this young boy who's in the transition between boy and man, he's not with his mother. Well, what's Mary probably thinking? Oh, well, he's now traveling with the men in the back of the caravan. Joseph is back there. Jesus isn't with him. What's he thinking? Well, Jesus is probably still up with his mother in the front of the caravan. So at the end of, and see, they would travel for a full day, and a husband and wife might not see each other the entire day. Some people, somebody in one service said, hallelujah. I said, no, that's, that's not what I'm going for. But um, they're coming for counseling tomorrow, so pray for them. Um, but they would go. So, so you can see how the scene plays out. At the end of the day, they break for camp, if you will, for the night. And Mary and Joseph finally connect. And Joseph looks at Mary and goes, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And Mary goes, I don't know. I thought he was with you. And he goes, he wasn't with me. I thought he was with you. And they start the frantic search. And he's nowhere to be seen. So now a full journey back. A full day. They've traveled a complete day. Now they get a complete day back and at least one day to find him because it says three days. We don't know when that three days started. But needless to say, there was some sleepless and high anxiety moments as Mary and Joseph look for their son. And I think one of the most radically understated verses in all of Scripture is in Luke chapter 2 when it says that when they found him, they were astonished. That might not be the word I would use. I wonder what that looked like. I mean, we know what Mary said, but I wonder how that looked like. I, I remember, and I've, I've told, I think I've told some of you the story before, but I remember my mother telling the story. When I was three years old, uh, living with the family, we lived in, in Maitland. My father was the associate pastor at... Um, at Asbury United Methodist Church. And we were out in the front yard playing. She was out in the front yard with me playing. The phone rang. Of course, you know, back in the day, before cell phones, you had to go in the house to get the phone. So she walked inside for a moment to grab the phone. She came out. She said, it wasn't more than a minute later. She said, you were gone. I was gone. She had no idea. Now, you've got to understand that where we lived in Maitland, um, if you went one way down the street, about half a quarter of a mile, you came to Lake Sibelia. If you went a quarter mile down the other direction, you came to another lake. I don't remember the name of the lake. But basically, our house was pretty close to two large bodies of water. She was panicked. She frantically searched to find me, I don't know how many minutes later, about four houses down in the yard playing with some puppies that I had seen that I just followed away. But this is what I remember her saying. She said, son, I didn't know in that moment if I wanted to hug you or I wanted to strangle you. 
you know, I wanted to hug you or I wanted to kill you because of the panic it had caused in her. And so I wonder if Mary had that kind of a moment or Joseph had that kind of a moment. I want to hug you, but I really want to hurt you at the same time because of of that fear and that anxiety that would have caused. And that's when Jesus responds to their astonishment, to to her questioning. So we've been searching all over for you. And it's almost nonchalant. It's almost flippant a little bit. And I don't think that's the way Jesus said it, but that's the way we can almost read it. Because he says, why are you looking for me? Like, duh, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know this is where I had to be? And some translations of the Bible say it in a way that may be a little more familiar to some of you. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? I had to be about my father's business. And that's the reason I believe Luke tells this story. I believe that's the line that is so significant because it sets the tone for the ministry of Jesus. Now, he's 12 years old, and he's in the temple courts, and he's learning from the scribes and the elders and the teachers, and he's astonishing them with his knowledge. But the key phrase is, I had to be about my father's business. And and I thought about that. As a personal challenge, because, because we know that would be the character of Jesus' entire life. But if that's the character of Jesus' life, that his goal, his purpose in life was to do the things he was called and sent to this earth to do. And we're called to be disciples of Jesus. We're called to be students of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, a student. To learn and to follow the example. Then, then wouldn't that statement apply to us as well? That the character of our lives, if we choose to to be a follower of Jesus and we choose to be part of a community committed to following Jesus, that 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 should be characteristic of our lives. That we are to be about the Father's business. And and so so I start to connect this to to resolutions and to goals we have for a new year. And I think one of those, those things that we fall prey to is that our goals and our objectives become very self serving. They become about the things that I want. I don't think there's anything wrong with those goals to take up a new personal habit or to, or to, to be healthier or more organized or, or whatever it may be or have better control of, of your temper. Those are all worthy, worthy things to aspire to. But when our goals and our aspirations are all limited to the things that we get, to our benefit, to what we want, then we're missing the fullness of our call in Christ. Because Jesus gives us this example that we are to be about the Father's business. I mean, I think that's how he'd say it to us. Now, not only am I to be about the Father's business, but we are to be about the Father's business. And as we look into a a new year, that's a question. Is what we aspire to, what we hope to achieve, our goals and our dreams and our desires, do they reflect the Father's business? Now, if I were to say that, your fair question would be, the, well, what's the Father's business? And, of course, that's a complex question. But I think at its most simplest understanding, the work of God is always about transformation. God is a God of transformation, transforming lives and people in ways that lead to significance and impact. Something that that has applicable 
value in the lives of others. I mean, I, you know, the obvious example, Tuesday morning, Christmas morning, we got up at, at 7 o'clock to open presents. Now, why do we get up at 7 o'clock? Because we don't let our daughter get us up any earlier than 7 o'clock. She's on at 7 o'clock. When she was younger, it was 5 a.m. As she's now a young woman, we're like, look, you can make it till 7. Hold it. Give us till 7. It's the only day of the year that young lady gets up early voluntarily for anything. So at 7 o'clock, she woke us up. Now, she's smart. She made us coffee first. So we had our coffee, and we're in the living room, and we prayed together. And as we finish the prayer and we're getting ready to open the presents, we hear in the distance a pop. And all of a sudden, room goes dark. Power, entire house goes off. And we're like, are you kidding me? Blew a transformer. That's what we thought, a transformer blew. Now, I don't know if it was a transformer, because I know a couple seconds later, power came back on. So the only inconvenience was we had to reset all our clocks. Um, but, but, but it got me thinking about that, because a lot of times you hear those pops, and a lot of times there are transformers that blow. And, you know, the role of a transformer in, in and, and please, if you're an engineer, don't come and tell me all the intricacies after. I know this is very, very simplistic. I went through, you know, I, I'm trained theologically, not, not in, in uh, you know, electrical engineering. But in, in its simplest, most rudimentary understanding, like guys make, like me can get, is a transformer takes this massive amount of voltage and, and dissects it, simplifies it, gets it into our houses in ways that we can do something with it, okay? That it doesn't blow our houses up, all right? God's a God of transformation. It takes our lives, takes the complexities of our lives, the intricacies of our lives, the giftedness of our lives, and transforms and works in us so that not only are we blessed by the power of his presence, but we become valuable instruments of noble purpose. We become able to, to have an impact, and God uses us to bless and, and be about the work in which he's called us to. That's the story of the men and women of the scriptures, Genesis through Revelation. Their lives get changed, but their lives are always used in such a way that it brings value and blessing to others. They're about the work of God. And that doesn't stop at the end of Revelation. It's the history and the story of God's work through his people. We're called to be instruments of transformation. Not, we're not the power at work in it, but we help become vessels of that power. So God transforms our lives, blesses us, is at work within us, heals us, forgives us, restores us, and uses us. That's what Jesus understood. That's who we're called to be about the Father's business. The resolutions that God desires in us are not just resolutions that serve us. It's not resolutions of what we can get, but what God can do through us, what we can receive and what we can offer. And so how do we begin to do that? And, and the, the most profound and simplest application of, of that challenge for us is as we look into a new year to ask ourselves this question, how are we going to go deeper in the word and wider in the world? How are we called to go deeper in the word and wider in the world? Deep and wide. Andy Stanley wrote a book by this title. I completely stole it from him. Uh, years ago about his, ministry, his church of at North Point Community Church in Atlanta. Deep and wide. But that's, 
That's what Jesus models for us. He goes deep. He's, he's, he's entrenched in the scriptures and the story of God's work in the lives of God's people. And that's what he's doing there in the temple. He's learning and he's growing and he's developing this wisdom. But it serves him so that he can get out into the world and share that good news and that love and, and help people understand God in new and profound and powerful and life-changing ways. For us, how are we going deep in the word and, and spending time in the scriptures and being shaped by the stories? But it is not just for our edification. It's not just so that we can recite scripture and we can impress people with how much we know or how smart we are. But it's always so that it can begin to shape us so that we reach into the world. So that we become instruments of God's purpose. And God can flow through and work through us to bless and impact others. To, to, have a, an, a, a, to make a difference in the lives of others. We go deep so that we can reach wide. And so as we begin to think about our new year and our goals for 2019, that becomes a challenge. How are we about the Father's business? How do the things we aspire to help us go deeper in faith and wider in sharing that love and that reach with others? And so I challenge you to think about that. I mean, I think just, just, just take, take your goals and your desires and your aspirations a step further. You know, if, if your desire is to eat healthier in 2019, wonderful. But ask yourself, Lord, how are you using me? How can you use me maybe not only to, to be healthier myself, to eat better, but to help somebody who's hungry to eat at all. How can I be an instrument for that? If, if your goal is to exercise more, get more steps in. A lot of us have watches now that tell us how many steps we've taken in the course of a day. Great. But maybe some of those steps can be used in serving and caring for somebody or, or investing yourself in such a way that, that you become a blessing. If, if you want to read more and watch TV less, that's a wonderful aspiration. But maybe part of your reading can be going to uh, Blackburn Elementary and reading to kindergartners or first graders in their class. You get the point. I'm not trying to narrow down how it happens. But to say, in 2019, how are we about the Father's business? How are we going deep and reaching wide? That's the challenge. It's my challenge. Because I'm really good at the, the self-serving goals. I could tell you all the things I'd like to be different at the end of the year, and most of them would serve me. But if that's all it is, if that's as far as it goes, then I'm missing Christ in the midst of it. So as we get ready for a new year, and whatever that means, however you celebrate or, you know, like I said, celebrate the night of or the next day, I, I challenge you. I challenge you to take Jesus declaration to heart. We know Jesus was about the Father's business. How are we about the Father's business? How are we going deep so we can reach wide and let that shape us in the year that is to come? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the way that your word challenges us, the way that Jesus challenges us as a 12-year-old to be so rooted in a desire to, to go deeper in faith and and to begin to reach wider in love. That's, that's the example of Christ. And that's who we're called to be. Help us to be that. And to live that faithfully and obediently. Empower us as we begin a new year. To not only look within ourselves for our goals. But to look beyond ourselves. To the way that you can use us to serve and to love. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. And amen.
And friends, I invite you now as we conclude worship this morning to stand as we're going to close with another one of our our Christmas hymns, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept their watching, or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens. They're shown a holy light. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. The shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth. Ring out the angel chorus that hailed the Savior's birth. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Down in a the humble Christ was born and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas born go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And Lord, empower us with our lives, with our actions to tell your story, to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. And we do it in the songs we sing, the faith we profess, and the love that we show. Be our strength, be our grace, be our power. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.